Hello everybody, and welcome back to Manga Marks and Movies, a show where we don't talk smack about movies, we celebrate them, except on the rare occasions where we do actually talk smack about movies. This, today, is not one of those occasions, as we continue to actually talk about anime movies, and talk about No Game, No Live Zero, which we saw in theaters last year. Yes, Manga Marks and Movies, the only show where it takes us over a year after recording a podcast to release it but i'm excited because from this point onward we have the remaining episodes of ad movies recorded in 2017 that are all going to be about one film per episode because they are that long of discussions all the remaining episodes that we recorded in 2017 are over an hour long and just a single film and even better i have made the decision that i do not need to spend so much time on the editing of these because it's just not time productive but that's okay because the quality of each podcast is already pretty good because they were all recorded on like one single audio file since we lord and i recorded them together at home so you should be able to listen to all the remaining at ubi's episodes all i would say eight remaining episodes from the year 2017 that will come out before the end of this year 2018 i'm going to promise you that i will get them out before the end of this year all the episodes we recorded in 2017 will be out by the end of 2018 and we are going to continue on talking about some anime movies with no game no live zero and there's only two more of these at movies episodes from 2017 that are actually about anime movies in fact one of those was recorded in 2018 and not 2017 and you'll probably listen to that next time but Again, for now, we're going to talk about No Game, No Life Zero, the prequel film to the hit anime TV series No Game, No Life that I really liked, We Lord really liked, and I hope you will really like our podcast on the film. So, enough procrastinating, let's play! <laughs> There's a reason that we came across in this world There's a reason that we caught the Welcome to Manga Mavericks at Movies, the show where we talk smack about movies. Though we're not talking smack, as usual, about movies, <laughs> the catchphrase is a lie. It's only applicable on certain occasions, and this is not one of those occasions. We really should have recorded that episode about Wind River, because then we'd be talking smack about movie. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with the movie we saw. Yeah, not at all. 
nothing thematically, conceptually at all, because the film we saw was No Game, No Life Zero, the prequel to the hit anime No Game, No Life, adapting the sixth volume of the light novels. It's it's a backstory set 6,000 years before the events of the series, focusing on how the world of No Game, No Life came to be the way it is in the show. How it transformed from this war-ravaged world full of fire and darkness and ash that burns your skin into a colorful, relatively peaceful world where no one solves their conflicts by killing, but by gaming. (laughs) And it's a really cool story. Conceptually especially, just the idea of the characters, humanity in this film, figuring out a way to manipulate the other races into a stalemate and then shifting the rules of the world so that conflicts would no longer be resolved through war so no one would have to die in warfare and for, like, this big power struggle between the races. It was super cool to see how that story played out. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because this is a prequel, we don't really have the established characters from the show in this film. They certainly look like them, though. Yeah, the character designs are rather lazy in this regard, because there are obvious stand-ins for Sora and Shiro in the form of Riku and Shivi. But their personalities are vastly different. The character designs, though... Riku is basically Sora, but with white hair. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And Shivi is... She's Mecha Shiro. Yeah, she's... Well, she's Mecha Shiro, and she also has purple hair. So, basically, the biggest difference between the characters is uh, their hair colors. And otherwise, the designs are pretty similar. Steph looks exactly the same as her, like, past counterpart. Yeah, Corone. Although, again, the personality of Crone is completely different. Yeah. But I guess it, it works better that they look the same since they're related. Yeah. So. With Corone, it makes sense because Steph is her descendant. Yeah. With the other two, with Riku and Shivi, I mean, maybe Sora and Shiro are supposed to be reincarnations of them. I'm not really sure. But either way... They were compelling characters, Riku especially, where Sora was this very aloof, carefree guy. He, he didn't really struggle. He didn't really get down in the dumps. He always believed he would win. Riku is a lot different. He's been through hardship in this war-ravaged world. When he was a kid, his town was decimated, and he was the only survivor, and he's had to go through life sacrificing people in order to survive. He has had to order 48 people to their deaths so that he could survive. And he had to do that because he was made the leader of the colony that, you know, is the last survivors of humanity. So he has to survive in order to lead his people. But to do that, to get out of dangerous situations, life-threatening situations, he has to sacrifice others. And it's just constantly wearing him down. And he's not at peace with it. He's not, like, nihilistic. He puts up a front, and especially in front of his community, that, okay, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna get emotional about this. This is the way it is. I'm sorry. But in private, he is, like, 
so frustrated, so distraught. He's bashing up his room. He's destroying his shelves and desk with his bare hands until he bleeds. And he's like wailing and bawling that and righteous indignation that this is unfair. How can I do this? How can I sacrifice the lives of so many people just to keep myself all right? This is, this is not right. This is bullshit. And he just really hates the way the world is. He really hates the kind of person that he ha- has become, having to sacrifice so many people in order to survive. It's yeah. really compelling <laughs> scenes. Like the scene where he's telling the little girl, Nona, that her rudder has died. And she, the reaction, the, the facial reaction of that little girl when she's told that is heartbreaking. Like the way she, her face contorts in, in shock. Fear and then like the screaming. Oh yeah, man, it did some intense stuff. That was a good scene. <clears throat> the scene where he's all of his emotional outbursts, Riku's, are super strong. We saw the dub. Scott Gibbs did an amazing job with this character yeah. and like the emotion and the frustration. Both in that scene where he's like tearing up his room, distraught over Yvonne's debt, and then later when he's having a conversation with Shivy and Shivy pushes him too far and he lashes out at her and says, You are the responsible for killing so many people and I hate that. I, I and he rants off the forty-eight people that he's had to kill or at least send to his their deaths over the course of his life, and he's remembered all of their names, and he's not forgiven himself for any of them. And he just tells her, "Do you know how many people are responsible for dying because of this stupid war? I bet you do, because you're ex machina, you're robot database people." So you probably do know the numbers, but the numbers mean nothing to you because those were people. Those those were people who had lives and families and they're dead, but to you they're just numbers, aren't they? Really good scenes, really good emotional outbursts. Yeah. Like I really connected with this character and like the character arc he has from going from this you know, jaded jaded, given up hope on changing things. Like, the beginning of the movie is him narrating, you know, I used to think there was a game... There was never a game that you couldn't win. How naive I was. That's childish fantasy. Because he's lost so much during his life. But thanks to the optimism that Chivy provides him, he's able to slowly regain conviction... And become passionate again about the idea, okay, enough's enough. I'm not going to let any people die anymore. We are going to find a way to end this war with the least amount of sacrifices possible. But we are going to put it to an end so no one has to die in this war again. No one. We are not going to kill anyone. and Because I, we do not want to kill anyone. We don't want to die either. We're going to find a solution outside of what the rules of this war are to bring it to an end. It's a really great idea, really great speech he gives. They showed in that long interview with the English dubcast at the beginning of the movie 
or even before that, in the recap of the story of No Game No Life, the first season, they showed the scene uh, where Sora is giving that speech to the people about, hey, humanity is weak, but that's okay, because we survive because we are weak. We have become great because we are weak, and we continue to fight. We know that we are weak, so that's why we continue to try harder. And that's paralleled in this movie, in the scene that Riku gives the people. And... Just like in the show, the speech Riku gives, you know, brings everyone together and they believe and they are willing to make, you know, this sacrifice, not even the sacrifice, they are willing to fight for this cause and for this dream that seems crazy. It seems crazy that such a small amount of people could accomplish something as big as stopping a war between literal gods among, even beyond just their their races, the other races, the gods even above them, they're trying to stop and manipulate into stopping this war. But because Riku is so compelling and because his ideals are just so, you know, emotionally resonant and appealing to everyone who has just had to live, live through such hardship, you know, it really rings true. And it's just such a great moment. It is, of course, such an intriguing parallel between that scene that, uh, Sora had in the first season of the show. In No Game No Life, the first season, we kept hearing these statements by Sora about how the world was unfair, so they're going to fight back against the unjust rules of the world, sometimes by cheating, but just other ways. They're going to like find means outside the rules of the game. They're going to create their own rules, and they're going to win. They're never going to lose. Riku comes to the same kind of conclusions, gives the same kind of message to his people in his speech in this film, but it's so much stronger in this film because we've actually seen the hardship. We've seen the horrors of this world. We've seen that the sky is covered in a red smoke of just all of this... Uh, just it's smoke, the sun is completely blocked out. Like at the beginning of the movie, we get this statement by Sora, I mean, Riku, that there used to be this thing called a sun, and that it lit up the sky, but that's not a thing anymore because no one's seen the sun because, you know, the clouds of warfare have just covered it. For the entirety of his life. And then the ash burns off part of his skin. Yeah, the, the ash in the air is like so toxic that it burns your skin. So it's an incredibly hostile place for people to survive. It's a miracle that there are any human survivors left. And that's known several times throughout the movie. And that ties into the message. Yeah, it's a miracle. It's an anomaly. It's aberrant. But it's happening. It is it is the reality. They have survived. They're still here. They're tenacious. They persevered through this hardship. And they can try. They have a fighting chance. There is no probability. Of, the probability is not zero. There is always a chance of success. No matter how slim, how impossible it seems. There is always a chance of success. And so they're willing to f fight for that chance, fight for that slimmer, slim uh, percentage of hope and achieve that peace that they are striving for. It's really cool ideas mm -hmm. and inspiring messages 
about like how people can come together and accomplish great things, even in the face of great adversity. I think that the movie was very on the nose with those messages. One of the biggest weaknesses of the movie is the dialogue, I feel, because they keep repeating this idea of the heart. Because Shivy is this ex machina. She's this cyborg robot who belongs to this big collective. But because she was so interested in the idea of the heart or human emotions, she left the collective, or rather she was rejected because it was interfering with her, like, uh, cognitive uh, abilities or like her role to operate within the collective. So she was uh, ab- ejected from the collective to pursue this idea on her own without inter- interfering with the collective's objectives. And so Shivy is constantly talking about the heart. And she, and like there are just three, there are three conversations that are like them, even four really. Four, where they're just talking, Riku and Shivi, about the idea of the human heart and like what it means to have a heart, human emotions, all that jazz. It's basically the same kind of messages. In each conversation, there's like de- character development that happens through those conversations. Like in the first, like really big conversation after uh, Shivi and Riku meet, the one that leads Riku to attack Shivi with the knife and then. Like, Shivi asks him, uh, do you want to kill me? If you want to do that, I really want to understand your heart, so I'm go- I will let you, because that's all I want. But then she also understands, like, oh, the way I've been speaking about this and about this war has hurt been hurting Riku emotionally. So over the course of the film and through these conversations, she is slowly learning human emotions and, like, what like it means. So it, that's really interesting. I feel that Shuvi was a really interesting character in her development. I just think that the way the conversations are written, which is so much emphasis and repetition of the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart, it just gets really tiring. And especially because it's the knee jerk reaction to people talking about the heart is like, oh my god, this is so corny. Like, this idea of, oh, the human heart is so difficult to understand. I am a robot who can't understand human emotions. Like, your knee-jerk reaction to that kind of character and that kind of writing is that, oh, what is this? Like, a children's show writing is like, oh, this is didactic kind of thing you'd find in, like, a PBS cartoon or some old kid's cartoon or something. Uh, like old My Little Pony might be talking about it's even new like My Little Pony might be talking about this idea <laughs> of the heart, you know. But it's not a bad idea that they're talking about. Like the actual like meat of those conversations, what they're talking about. Like there's good character development you get from that. They're really nice character interactions. Like in the conversation they have later, uh, which ends with Shuvi asking. Was there a change of atmosphere when, uh, I forget exactly, like, what the circumstances, but, uh, Shuvi brings up something that makes Riku a little, uh, uncomfortable, or, like, it's like, uh, oh, yeah, like, she gives him, like, const, uh, 
she can consoles him when he's getting like emotional and like tells him, "Hey, you need you should do what your heart tells you to do, what you think is best, what's right for you, and I'll be there with you because I care about you." I think mean, get, that gets really emotional, and then immediately afterwards she's like checkmate, and then he's like, "Wow, uh, we were having this moment here, and then you kind of like made it weird," and that's when she says, "Was there a change in atmosphere conditions?" <laughs> And, like, she's raising it because, like, the atmosphere yeah, outside... of the ash That's, like, why they're yeah. kind of, like, hiding and playing, like, chess just to buy the time to begin with. But, like, you know, uh, we can also interpret, uh, you know, because of our slang, uh, read the atmosphere, read the mood. So it's, yeah. like, this great <laughs> double pun kind of thing yeah. that, that was really cool, fun. It was good. There's a lot of nice dialogue-based humor in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that, like, the whole stuff about the heart could have been, like, phrased a lot better. But I feel, yeah, the ideas themselves were really well done. Like, yeah, I know, like, part way through the movie, you're, like, whispering to me, Riku would get along really well with uh, Kiritsugu. Right, be- <laughs> especially because he's talking about, like, how right is it to keep living if it means costing the lives of so many other people what it, is how it worth right like, is it yeah. to survive at the cost of other people is it, and this yeah. is like the exact same question that Kirizugo struggles throughout Fate Zero yeah. in that he Kirizugo believes it is right to do what is best for the most number of people it's right to sacrifice people uh, some people for the greater benefit of the good. But if that sacrifice is gonna keep happening, is it really worth? And Riku is way better than Kiritsugu in this regard, because he recognizes this, whereas it took Kiritsugu, like, to end the Fate Zero to, like, oh, Kiritsugu was, like, in denial. thinking was was a fallacy. Uh Uh-oh. Well, I I think part with Kiritsugu, like, we're going to tangent here, but, like, with Kiritsugu, it was the fact that I think he understands that his logic is flawed, but he thought the Grail would give him a better answer. But the Grail yeah. can only could only grant his wish based on his own interpretation of what he wants. Right. Yeah. So his line of thinking was really flawed. And yeah. He thought that the Grail could make it perfect, like a perfect representation yeah. of what he wanted. But because he couldn't think about what he wanted really in the best way he thought because he thought there would only ever have to be one choice sacrificing only one time where you would need to sacrifice people for the greater good and then the grail poses the question uh no because maybe there'll keep being things where you're gonna have to sacrifice people so then what and like uh but so they also have this conversation here in no game alive zero and yeah. Riku, Riku is like the one who's already th- thought about this, and that's why, that's why he comes up with this these rules that no, uh, no one is going to die, and we are not going to kill people, no sacrifices for the greater good. Everyone will come out of this alive, mm-hmm. and then ultimately it does not pan out perfectly. There does need to be sacrifices. Bo, Chuvi, and Riku ultimately end up sacrificing their lives for the greater good. Yeah. But they stuck by their principles, and humanity survived as a result, or humanity, as they are called in the world of this board. But it was a really strong message and really compelling character arc for these characters. Uh, even though the whole robot doesn't understand human emotions thing is very overdone in media. Chuvi was a very compelling character in how she slowly 
came to comprehend these emotions of Riku through these conversations. And even if it got very tiring, the hero keeps saying the heart, the heart, the heart. And she was still a very compelling character. And when it comes to that moment where Riku is proposing to Shuvi and we see her, like, her first reaction is like, uh, I don't understand this, so I'm going to decline. But then, you know, the conversation keeps going and she's thinking about it in a logical way. You know, marriage is like a thing where people come together so they can reproduce, but I can't reproduce. Riku, you'll remain a virgin for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, she does literally say that. It's a great line. Uh, like a lot of that kind of humor, that the humor where they're talking about like uh, very bluntly that oh she's a robot and she doesn't understand like sex sexual innuendos, those were moments that got laughs from the audience a lot, and they were good, generally good written moments, and they were never made creepy. Like no game in your life, the show is heavy on fan service, and the most uncomfortable parts of it to me are some of the more lolly con aspects. I never, you know, felt that it was it ever crossed the line too much, but yeah. you know, it always like is little uh do you really need to have so many like fan service moments with Shiro who looks very underage. And Shuvi, you know, looks exactly like Shiro. She is, you know, underage. But, you know, here, it's not about, like, sexuality. Like, Shuvi is never, like, presented in fan service moments. There's never exploitative moments. Like, even in the baiting scene, it, it, there's, like, no fan service shots, really. It's just pretty, you know, straightforward about the story, and it doesn't digress into those moments, just mm. even just for cheap laughs. Like, it's very focused on telling this serious story and telling it right, and doing, and, you know, really focusing on the emotions of its the characters, and, you know, it knows, I think the director knew, that, like, having these, having fanservice moments in this movie, like, during these important the conversations, yeah, it, it would break the tone. Like, it's it's really nice that they were able to distinguish this contest, because No Game, No Life Zero, like, it's totally so much different from the regular show. The regular show is very much kind of a comedy, kind of over-the-top, kind of, like, I guess, game series overall. This is just a very, this is like a very much a very serious kind of depressing story in a way. So, like, it was a good thing that they didn't, like, stoop to doing the same fan service tropes that, like, people have problems in the anime for. Like, yeah. They, they stuck with what they believe would fit the material best. But what I'm also getting to here is, you know, I was a little skeptical of the romantic tease between Riku and Shuvi in the movie at the at the start, especially since <laughs> yeah. in Shuvi's introduction scene, she makes it she makes a joke oh, about, God. "Hey, big brother, I oh, can't live without you. Please make a woman out of me." And so there are these little sister Olicon jokes that you know got a laugh from the audience because they were like funny jokes because they timed them well. Like in that first moment of that, you know, there's this big dramatic buildup because oh crap. Is this ex machina girl gonna kill Riku or gonna like damage him? And then it, you know, her reaction is, oh, big brother. And you're like, <laughs> huh? And what really, you know, sells it is that Riku's character is never, you know, 
never crosses a line into creepiness, or there, there's never any moment where you feel weird about their relationship, or anyway, mm-hmm. that, like, something is kind of, you know, not right about it, because Riku is, like, very, like, normal person, you know, his, yeah. he, he doesn't, like, react to situations in a way you'd expect a typical anime light novel protagonist too, or even like Sora too in these yeah, kind of situations. So, oh, Sora, there are Sora, definitely yeah. moments like when he's rejected by Shubi when he proposes. <laughs> that was like very Sora. But overall, like he because he's a more serious character and he has other priorities, there aren't like many comedic sides where he's like reacting, oh, this is weird. Well, 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 I'm getting flustered and embarrassed. So that's really refreshing that we don't get those tired cliches out of it. And it also mm-hmm. just makes, because like he has this nonplus reaction or he has this very like straightforward, uh, that's not proper behavior. Don't do, say those kind of things. Because his attitude is like that, it just makes those mo- moments funnier. And there aren't that many moments like that. There are only two, oh, big better jokes. You know? And, uh, the, so, it doesn't overstay its welcome, like, uh, the heart, you know, jargon does. Mm. And, uh, it doesn't that make that much sense why she, you know, says those lines. <laughs> like, in the movie, she says, that is the most logical response I thought in order to communicate with you. And he, Riku is like, really? Uh, that's kind of weird. You could try better, because that's not how uh, normal people talk. So it's kind of weird to me, like, why she thought that would be the best way to communicate with Riku, is to talk like a Emoto character archetype from a trashy light novel. <laughs> Was that the real reason that the war started in this board? Yes. Over the people wanting to marry their little sisters. Oh, and God. So it was a war between oh. the pro-little sisters, anti-little sisters, and, that, and the, the people forgot the reason why the war started over time, <laughs> but only the ex machinas kind of remember the cultural uh, memories of it. <laughs> or at least, like, the, the light oh. novels that inspired by the trend, like she she remembers Oremo or some yeah, bad mean, little sister. No game in life's case. Aramanga Sensei, more so probably. Yeah, I mean, no game in life's case. It's mostly just parroting the incest thing. Yeah, there's never this indication I got where Sora and Shiro were romantically interested. Uh, like, Their relationship is very much family. Like most which, of the people, may, but that is why it's even creepier. Why there are. Uh, Fan service moments with Shiro and No Game Online. That's yeah. why it was always more weird, is because they were, you know, family. It was kind of weird to have those fan service moments. Yeah. But, you know, they're not related in this movie, Riku and Shuvi. And, you know, the age difference is irrelevant because there's no sexuality to the relationship. It's not about sex. It's about the emotional connection they have. And mm. that it is only about that. And so that's why the romance really works for me. And why I could really, you know, get into it. Even though, you know, her character design is very much still, you know, if she looks underage. She looks like a little girl. But it's not, you know, it's fine. Because she's a robot. And it's only about the emotional involvement. It's only about the fact that... Both Riku and Chuvi love each other, you know, because they bring out the best in each other emotionally. They are pillars for each other to grow as people, and that's their connection. It's sweet, it's cool, it's heartbreaking, and yeah, 
I could really get into it. It was a good romance that was developed well and paid off well. And, you know, a tragic way, but a satisfyingly tragic way at the very least. Yeah, definitely. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And, yeah, again, like, the coolest thing to me about this movie is the world building and how the game of this movie is. Because in the show, you know, the games are all twist on, you know, normal games we have or, like, you know, fantasy games. And it's just the fun of it is seeing what Sora and Shiro do to manipulate these games to their advantage and how they win against, you know opponents that may be cheating or are just too good but they always come out of the top because blank never loses and in this game humanity is the greatest of underdogs there are so few of them left and they're going up against the little gods and all they're doing is manipulating uh the situation to get the war zone outside of where humanity is situated so humanity can be safe and then have each faction fire off their deadly world-destroying weapons at each other at the same time so it creates this giant ball of energy that they can use to finally create the conceptual thing that is the reason the war is started that doesn't exist but like the reason the war is is that they're all you know, fighting each other, all the gods, they're all commanding their people to fight each other so that only one remains, so there can only be one true god, and the thing that will end the war is if they create this conceptual, like, MacGuffin. I forget what the actual name of it is. I don't know if the name is that important. It's, it's just a MacGuffin. It's just, like, the reason they're fighting the war. And what what it does is that it just gives them, like, the ultimate power to change the world for mm. the way they want it to be. So what's great about it is that the plan is just to have them create that MacGuffin, and th- that way it'll be there, someone will take it, and the world can be changed, and that will stop the war. And then what's great about the climax is that even though Riku himself cannot grab the MacGuffin and, you know, become, and become it like the ruler of the world because it's not something that mortals can touch, you know, because the movie sets up that he has been, you know, in contact with the god of games. He's been playing him ever since he was a kid and it pays off here because he prays to the god of games that, hey, you know, you're the only god that I ever really believed in. I really, this is the only time I'm placing my fate in God to, you know, please make this world better. And so, the God of Games, Tet, he does that. He gets the MacGuffin, and he becomes the God of the New World. And he changes the world into the one that Riku wanted. A world where people will not die in wars, for conquest and power, just needlessly. Instead, everything in this world will be decided by games. And it will it will be decided in a non-violent, bloodless, peaceful way. And of course, it's not a perfect world that is free of any problems, as we know in No Game No Life, the show. But it's a peaceful world. It's a <coughs> world without suffering, without the hardships that 
Riku and humanity had to suffer through before. And that's what's really cool. It's what's really awesome about this story of like how just the belief that you could change the world and like there's there is another solution to the choices that you're given. Like this is a idea expressed in Trigun and some other stories. You're given a choice between two things, to kill or not kill, for example. But you, there's always another solution. And then if you really work hard for it, you can get, you can enact that other solution. You can reach it. And that's what Riku manages. And it takes sacrifice. Shuvia has to sacrifice herself in order to make this plan a reality. Riku, you know, one thing I really would have liked to see was, like, just every single process that, like, broke Riku down. Like, we definitely got, like, one moment of it where we see the black ash, like, has completely, like, eroded his skin. And that, yeah. but, like, it continues beyond that, in, and we don't really see the montage of that. I think it's just assumed that the corroding just like made him like force him to like amputate off his arm yeah because it was pretty much poisoning his body but it was like a series of events that just continually Riku down in the same kind of way that Vash in Trigun you know could kept getting scars and scars over the years he was Mm -hmm. alive because of his non-violent solution requiring him to make that sacrifice of his own body Riku also does that in this movie, and, you know, he's in such poor health that he basically, you know, dies at the end of the movie because, yeah. you know, he, he he was on his last legs in that final war, the final battle to begin with. But, yeah, it was just really awesome, uh, just this idea of, like, people finding another solution to... A conflict that seemingly only had uh, a couple of set choices. Going outside the rules, creating your own rules, and then just, you know, not playing someone else's game, playing your own game. Uh, making your own rules. That's that's really cool. That's the, that's the theme of No Game No Life to show. But with the severity of the situation in the film, you know, it rings more powerfully, I feel. And it's, and where the show is a lot of fun, this movie is just really awesome thematically and in terms of the ideas, even more so. And it's not exactly a fun movie because it's very depressing and it's very tragic in terms of the lives of these characters. It ends, of course, on the you know optimistic note that Tet became the god, he changed his sport into a world of games, and now life is happier you know, it's very colorful in the world now. The sun came back, the skies are blue again. So their sacrifices created a better world for everyone. But uh in general, throughout the movie, it's very bleak. But it's a really great story. A lot of people were saying that this is the best no game, no life story arc. At the very least, there were a lot of people who were saying this movie... They liked it even better than the show. I'm not really sure about that because this movie does not really have the same appeal as the show in terms of like how fun the games in the show were. It's, it's a um, very different but, beast than the show. I feel it's like 
it's like I can see how someone could like it more than the show if like depending on like your preference on what types of stories you enjoy but in comparison to the arcs themselves like they're just so different that I don't know it's a bit hard to compare it because it's no game no life the main stuff is just very differently structured yeah but I still highly recommend it but I would say that I wasn't completely satisfied with the movie in terms of its production values. For the most part, you know, it looks pretty okay. I mean, it's not very visually memorable, or at least unique looking, because a lot of the backgrounds are, like, just very red, and there are very barren landscapes. So it's not very visually interesting, which was one of the great strengths of the show. And because most of the film is a bunch of talking, you know, there isn't a whole lot of amazing animation. The exception is the fight between Shuvi and Jabril. This was very incredible, and it was very cool to see Jabril before we saw her in No Game, No Life, the show, because her character is very much the same. But in the context of the world before the show where it was a world of war, you can see, like, how that translated into this very vicious, deadly personality. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it makes was you really see... frightening to see her as this bl- battle-crazy, har- battle bloodlusting uh, monster that she was. Yeah. And, you know, you really felt the tension as Shivy was fighting her because she was, like, losing a... Con- increasingly, like, desperate battle. And even though there was, like, slim moments of hope when she was able to connect Stroop with the other ex-Machina and prove to them that there was, like, value in, like, the information she had gained on the human heart and, you know, then being able to unlock the ability to defend herself. You know, even after that, you know, it was still a losing battle. She was still, like, completely outcrossed by Drabil, and Drabil, like, had no mercy. She was out to kill Juvi, and she was out to get her head, and she had this very, like, uh, cheerful attitude the entire time. Very maliciously polite, and it was, like, great characterization that made her a really intimidating villain in this film, and I liked seeing her like that. Yeah. It's kind of a shame that uh, the only time we really see that aspect of her in the show is, like, during the you know, game she has with Sora and Shiro. And then Even then, that, she's a lot more tame there because she can't kill Yeah, it's kill a lot anyone. more tame because she's not out to kill. Yeah, she can't kill, so... Yeah. Yeah, but, like, it really makes you see Jabril in, like, a different light. So that was really cool as a fight, not only for the desperation of the fight and, like, how it went along, but also just for what it showed us of Jabil's characterization and, like, how that puts her in a completely different context from what we knew of her in the show. And, it like, especially when you get to, like, one of the final scenes of the film where it's, like, we cut back to the present day... And then it's just kind of a wrap-up with Izuna kind of realizing, hmm, maybe Ted's story was true because the names in Steph's amulet were the names that uh, of Karon, Shuvi, and Riku. And, you know, Drabil is, like, reflecting on, hmm, Shuvi, I remember her. She wasn't exactly human. Hmm. And it's like, you know, she 
feels no guilt over, you know, killing her. like, what the it's fuck? Like, huh. And so it's like, you know, you kind of realize in the moment, oh, uh, Jabril is not exactly a good person. person. She She uh, does not really have the same kind of morals we do or ideas about killing people that we do. So it's like... Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder if the light novels will do anything with that going forward. If she ever gets into a position where uh, she would be in the before the the events of the show, uh, you know, during the events of the movie where she was like allowed to uh, kill freely, and how her personality <laughs> would translate if she were to go back to you know being in that situation. Yeah, so that was very interesting. But yeah, again, the movie didn't really look that much like the actual quality. It only looked marginally a step better than the show. Honestly, maybe not even better than the show, because what was really enchanting about the show was the great, vibrant color scheme, and that was very lacking in this movie. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of the production quality, I was very disappointed. I think that... You know, with this level of quality, it could have just been like a TV production, I would think. And honestly, I really wish like there was even more reading room because I would like to have seen more events happen in the story. Like, especially during the portion where humanity is going around to con- manipulate the other races into uh, engaging in the final battle and ending the war. I really would have liked to see even more of those events. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, I wonder maybe the story would have been told even better if it could have been an OVA series, a short one, or maybe even uh, expanded as a decent length core. But as it is, it's still a very strong film. It's pretty tight. And honestly, because there are so many conversation scenes, the first half of the movie does feel a little slow. So maybe that wouldn't have worked if we had to consume it over multiple different episodes or on weeks at a time. It might have got even more tiresome in some regards. Yeah. But, again, if you like No Game, No Life, I would recommend this. The appeal of it is different than the show, but if you're interested in the world of the show and in seeing how it came about, and seeing Jibril in a different light, and maybe some other uh, interesting illusions, comparisons between the ancestors and uh, stand-ins for the characters of the show as they were presented in the movie, I would highly recommend it, because it's very interesting, it was very enjoyable, it had a good romance. Yeah, definitely. But I will have to close off here talking about the theater experience because one of the things that left me a little disappointed with the experience I had with the movie was the engagement of the audience. Because they did laugh at a few moments, but overall I felt that they were not really engaged with the movie for whatever reason. There were two people sitting beside us. The person who was sitting right next to me on my left was not very pleased with this movie, it felt. He sighed a lot during portions of the movie, especially during the long conversations talking about the heart. And during the middle of the movie, he and his friend just left. Which, honestly, I just think is a waste of money. It is a waste, and, you know... Unless they're, like, one of those, like, assholes, like, think that you should deserve a refund if you go see a bad movie. Which is dumb. Which is not... The case you should... I mean, you paid for the movie. 
you know, it's whether the, the movie the- is good or bad. <laughs> it's not the theater's that- fault if you don't like the movie. Yeah, it's, it's not your the theater's own fault. fault. It's your own fault for not doing the research to see if whether yeah. it would be a movie you would like. And there was nothing wrong with the screening of our movie either. Like, yeah, it was normal, A lot of the time when we go see movies like this, there are problems. And in that case... Yeah, you should request a refund because sometimes you have to put you, you you are just going to the movie to watch the movie and like if it's starting late or if this it's not being projected right or like they're playing the wrong audio track like ha- what happened when we saw Princess Mononoke they played like the wrong <laughs> audio yeah, that, was, that was a train wreck but this one was fine air conditioning was, was working in the theater the film showed up on time. Mm-hmm. No production issues. It was good. Yep. And it was showing in the small theater, but what was notable is that there was only supposed to be one showtime today, but they added another one, and even for a small theater, it was pretty packed. Yeah. So I'm going to assume that... I'm assuming the, the sub-screening did really well. Yeah, I'm assuming that the movie did really well, like, in our area, in Eden Prairie, and I guess there were a lot of No Game No Life fans or just anime fans who wanted to see this movie. Yeah. So that was very interesting to me because I, it's a rare occasion. This happened with Your Name, but... Uh, your your Name's an entirely different beast, though. Yeah, and in New York, this happened with Sailor Moon R, the movie. That, that happened with Sailor Moon R here as well. Yeah. Like, of course, that I think they showed that at Southdale. Uh, yeah, but Minnesota. for a franchise yeah. as... As small as No Game No Life? Uh, not to say No Game No Life isn't popular. It's popular. Yeah. But compared to your Com- yeah. Sailor Moons or your Yu-Gi-Oh's and stuff, yeah. it's a niche franchise. Definitely. It's not as big a franchise as those. So it was definitely surprising to see that the movie was performing well, even if, I guess, the audience reaction, at least in our theater, was not the best. There was definitely a guy I heard said that after the movie that it was boring which eh, I mean I think I think a lot of people who didn't like this movie weren't aware that it was gonna adapt volume 6 there was like, someone who was talking to his friend that oh the, this movie adapted volume 6 yeah. he was talking about like what the first season adapted and then, yeah so there, there are people who clearly know but yeah. I mean honestly, there were people who like, knew about uh, Katakawa and uh, how they fired the director of Kimono Friends. So people were testing that at the movie. Uh, how they should have boycotted the movie because of that. Yeah. Guys, if you're going to boycott Katakawa, you're basically going to be boycotting every single light novel anime you've probably seen. So yeah, good, good which, luck with that. Uh, maybe it's not the worst idea considering how most light novel anime are. But then again, Katakawa also has a lot of the good ones like. Re-Zero and Konosuba, though, so... That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're the shueisha of, like, novel companies. You, you can't really abandon them. Right. I but... mean, there were anime fans in this theater, though. Yeah. It's just, it's a shame that not a lot of them seemed to really engage with this movie. There was yeah. no applause. There was, like, there was laughs, but, you know, because this was not a comedy. There, yeah, I, mean... I, I think some people were probably expecting, even if it wasn't going to be Shiro and Sora as the main characters, that it was going to have, like, funny moments. It did have funny moments. Well, it's, if it, it's going to be comedy-focused, I mean. Yeah. Like, which, this is this isn't a comedy-focused thing. If you have ever heard of what happens in the novels for this, which I know a lot of people are aware of, this is what happens in Volume 6. Like, that's, at least, like, from my experience, a lot of people know about the backstory being depressing. 
So I think a lot of these people are just aren't as well versed in No Game No Life. So I think when they were going into this, they were expecting something entirely different. Mm-hmm. Which Madhouse, I think. Madhouse and Katakawa, when they greenlit this, they pretty much said almost right away that this was going to die volume 6. This was going to be the backstory. So it's not like they like Katakawa and Madhouse were like trying to subvert people's expectations. They told everyone up front what it's adapting. Yeah. So I think a lot of it's just people, people's lack of knowledge of the material itself. Yeah. And just misguided expectations. Yeah. But it was interesting, for sure, to be in a theater that was mostly full for a change. You, again, it was a small theater, but, you know, it was mostly full for an anime showing. It was a, certainly a big change of pace from when we went to see Lupin and when there was only yeah. seven people there including us. <laughs> yep. And after the movie, we got comments on our t-shirts by this little girl. I'm this... surprised someone brought their little girl to no game, no life. Yeah, I was gonna, I did not realize she was complimenting me at first, so I was a little late in saying, oh, thank you, but yeah, that was very uh... nice of that little girl to to come on our t-shirts. And she, like, because you kind of wa- was walking by her, like, she ran up to you to compliment you on your t-shirt. Hmm. So... Did you say thank you to Yeah, I did say that. Thank okay. you. Yeah. It was a nice budding anime fan. There, there there was a surprising amount of parents and children in that audience, actually. I'm kind of concerned if children have been watching No Game, No yeah, Life. Yeah, the show for sure is uh, <laughs> it's not, not really child-friendly. This movie is a little more child-friendly. And uh, again, with the oldest conversation of the heart, it did feel like uh, more... Uh, it felt pretty on the nose with the themes in a way that children's media were. So I think if you were a parent who did not know that this was not for children, you could be confused for Let's that. Let's go watch this fun film, No Game, No Life yeah. Zero, But kids. again, content-wise, with the way the dialogue was written, I think a parent could assume, oh, uh, this is sure a kid's thing because of the way dialogue's written. Yeah. Again, the dialogue could have been written better. The, the hard, These hard conversations should, could have been a little more subtle. Less on the nose. They were interesting content-wise, but uh, in the way they were written, definitely got grading. Mm. And just also to mention it, at the beginning of the movie, we got a recap of the events of the TV series, which was pretty okay. It, it went on fine, showed important scenes that informed you of the... What you would need to know to get the most out of the movie, especially that again, that scene where Sora is giving a speech to humanity. Since there is a direct parallel, Riku's doing that in the film. That was a good scene to include. And there was also interviews with the English dub cast, which was okay. I feel like it went on a little too long. It went on a little too long. You know, they also interviewed some of the characters that have very, like, minimal roles in the film. Yeah, Izuna's like, voice actress didn't really need to be interviewed. Like, I, they didn't. only they only did because Izuna's popular. Like Both Izuna and Tet, even though they were in this movie, they didn't do that much. Like, Tet's supposed to be the narrator, but Tet doesn't really show up until the very end. Yeah. Like, he shows up as, like, a silhouette because they, like, are always alluding to the fact that, like, Riku has been playing him yeah. in chess. But, the climax is him. The resolution of the film is him yeah. becoming the god. But speaking role-wise, Tet doesn't have that many lines. Yeah, neither Tet and Nisa. Like, really, you only had to... You only needed to do 
Chevy, Caron, and Riku. Yeah, everyone and Jibril. else. Jabril had yeah. a significant Even Jabril, though, I no, feel like no, you could No, I think Jabril you could do fine. Because mm-hmm. Jabril had a significant role. She killed Chevy. Yeah, yeah that true. fight scene lasted a good while, too. Okay, yeah, that's true. I don't know. I'd say, like, she didn't have as much fo- nearly as much focus as... Say Riku or yeah. Shibi. It was yeah. a fine interview with the dub cast. I do like always hearing what actors have to say about their roles. And since it was paired with the dub screening with this movie, I think it was perfectly fine to include. Of I, course, if it was included with the sub screen, I hear well, it was. I can def- <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can definitely hear you know groans from sub only purists about oh I yeah. don't care what what these dub actors thoughts on their characters are. I only care about the sub-actors. So, I mean, it worked out because I like the dub. I watched No Game in Life dub first, and I enjoy the dub. Yeah, I, I have a lot of problems with oh, a lot of Sentai dubs, old and new ones. That poor Food Wars dub. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, No Game, No Life, I feel like it has a very solid dub. And I feel like Sentai in general is just good with, like, more comedy-focused dubs. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they were able to, like, th- this cast and the same director were able to take something that's a very different in tone from the original No Game No Life and still perform it really well. Like, really well. Uh, just was really, uh, like, happy for me. Or, like, yeah. Nice for me to say. Yeah. Overall, I enjoyed the bonus features, but there was also that element of where I was also getting a little frustrated and, like, Come on, I actually want to see the movie now. <laughs> yeah. I was worried, like, oh my god, how many people are they interviewing? Like, as a standalone feature, like, if it was included on the DVD, you know, and I chose to watch it, that would be cool. Yeah. It's just that when you're sitting through a movie and you sat through a five-minute recap and now you're sitting through a 10-minute, 15-minute thing, 20 minutes from the beginning of the showtime until you act, the movie actually begins, I guess it's actually more interesting than trailers it actually has more point than that yeah but like it feels like it's going on way longer than trailers do because trailers are a lot shorter and you know they have faster cut editing one thing i liked about the editing of the interviews though is that they edited in clips where the characters felt like the characters were commenting (laughs) on what the actors were saying which was very clever of them so i like that yeah, I mean, even though, yeah, it's basically replacing the time of trailers, like, I feel like during trailers, beyond this mentality of, oh, wait, I don't have to pay 100% to the trailers, and, like, lots of people are on, like, their phones during trailers. Well, during something like an interview, it's kind of, like, feels awkward to take out your phone or something if you're, not, like, zoning out. Mm-hmm. So, Overall, yeah. I prefer interviews with production staff and Seiyu, and I think that, yeah. especially when you're pairing it with a theatrical release uh, and a sub sub screenings especially it, it makes no sense to have that like preview thing the dub preview thing with the sub screening it would certainly like, be yeah. interesting if they had made one with the seiyu for the sub and then one with the dub for the dub yeah i'm pretty sure that would also encourage people yeah. to watch bud versions which would be a very interesting uh, tactic but either way you know for us it worked out fine but i could definitely tell the audience was getting a little bored with it yeah, especially, I don't think a lot of casual anime watchers actually care about voice actors, as sad as it is. Yeah, a lot of casual, a lot of uh, people in general just care about the entertainment. They just care about the, the product people. and not the people who make it, because yeah. fuck them. That is why uh, the animation industry and, gen- and art 
industries in general uh, get exploited a lot because yeah. people do not because people are pieces of shit care about the work that goes into yeah. making great art. But I care. I was glad to hear the boys' after stops on their uh, performances, and it was cool. Thank you, Sentai, for putting out this movie in theaters because I yeah. I wanted to see this movie uh, in theaters. I was like, man. You know, the chances of it, it seems slim, but thank gosh. Yeah. It's too bad we don't get uh, Aniplex screenings, so we can't see Face Day Night, the Limited Blade Works. We couldn't see Kizumono Gottery. We couldn't see... Well, pretty much anything aside from SAO for some reason. There's something else we couldn't see either that really made me sad. Even for SAO, though, they only had sub-screenings. Like when no. they when they came around for the dub, the Minnesota never got the dub screenings. That's interesting. Yeah, it's especially weird. since that screening we went to was sold out. Yeah, completely sold out. Yeah, yeah. but hey, we lucked out. Uh, I guess No Game No Life is really popular in uh, Eden Prairie, Minnesota. So. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I never would have guessed. Yeah, I'm just very glad that. You know, even over here, we get a, enough anime movies, even if Aniplex likes to cuck us. Yeah, goddammit, Aniplex. Why don't you want me to buy your product? Yeah. Let, let, let me buy it, So we gotta drive to Michigan or Wisconsin or wherever it's close to I think it's Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. It'll fuck. be great when I go back to New York, whenever I go back to New York, because then I won't have to worry about that, because yep. I can watch anything You'll get New every movie. New York, New York gets everything. New York And even anything. more. And even, film festivals. It's true, even more. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we could see this movie, and this was a great episode. This conversation went on longer than I expected, actually. I didn't think it would be a full episode, but hey, there was a lot to talk about this with, with this movie. I really enjoyed it. So, yeah. Yeah. Whenever Sentai releases this on a DVD and Blu-ray, go check it out. It's a good time. It's a good time, for sure. But that will do for this episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies. Talking about no game, no lab zero. Thank you for joining me again, we Lord GTC. Where can the good people find you? Oh uh, yes, the good people can find me on Twitter at VLordGTZ. That is V-L-O-R-D-G-T-Z. Um, I'm not doing too much right now. I'm trying to do a read-through of uh, Lupin the Third, the manga released by Tokyo Pop back in the day. Uh, but I just have to get around to go starting up the next few volumes of that. So uh, I'm trying to do a plan of just like doing a few read-throughs on my Twitter of like various things that I own because I have too many manga that I haven't read yet. <laughs> and I think live tweeting it like uh, like in a regular like schedule basis will like actually help me get through it. But yeah, I mean aside from that, I want to talk about like. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Detective Conan. Uh, you can hit me up on that since I'm obsessed with those. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Mm-hmm. You can find me as Yasha on Twitter, my anime list, Animation Revelation. Basically, wherever there's a Yasha, there's me. I am not going to be as engaged on social media or even in writing as much as I'd like to, unfortunately. 
I just have a lot of commitments on my plate. But, you know, I'm going to keep making these podcasts. I'm going to keep writing as many reviews as I can in a month. And I hope you check them out on all-comment.com and on Animation Revelation. And as for the show, the Manga Mavericks podcast brand, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks, on Tumblr, mangamavericks.tumblr.com, and on iTunes, Manga Mavericks. Remember to like and subscribe our content on there. Helps the show out. And you can send any comments criticisms, suggestions to us at our email, mangamavericks at gmail.com. And you can check out the site all-comic, where we post our podcasts and reviews first. And follow it on Twitter at all underscore comic. This has been Manga Mavericks at Movies episode... 10, 9, I don't know, 10. 57. <laughs> this is probably like the 57th recording, maybe, I don't know. Probably. Well, whatever episode number it is, you've been listening to Manga Mavericks Ad Movies, and we'll see you in the next Manga Mavericks Ad Movies. Sayonara! Later! Later!